Amen. Now this is one of the most amazing weeks in the life of the church for us as believers in Jesus Christ. And it's been that way for the last 2,000 years. It's that way all around the world, every continent of the world for believers in Jesus Christ uh, beginning today. But I worry that we don't really appreciate it. You see, today is Palm Sunday, and the week is Holy Week. Palm Sunday marks the beginning of Holy Week as Jesus came into Jerusalem to light it up, to revolutionize the human experience. But my concern is that we are so busy, we are so pressed, that we don't set aside time to read and to reflect on what the Gospels tell us about this week, what Jesus did for us, all that Jesus went through for us. And so I want to invite you to do just that this week, to set aside some time and read the accounts of what takes place as this week unfolds, these seven days unfolds. It's just absolutely incredible. But here's what I want you to get out of this. I want you to see the extraordinary love your bleeding and dying Savior has for you. So this might be a week of renewal for you, for your family, uh, for your friends. Let's not let this week just happen. Let's be intentional. And let's work so that Jesus can speak to us. Now what I want to do today is I want to look at the very first thing that happened after Jesus rode into Jerusalem. After he arrived in Jerusalem, I want to look at this incredible activity of Jesus cleansing the temple. Now let me set the context. Jerusalem is overflowing with the crowds, the Jewish crowds that are gathered for Passover. They have this wild expectation, many of them, thousands, tens of thousands of them, this wild expectation that the preacher, the prophet, uh, the teacher was somehow in some way going to set up a, a quasi-spiritual military kingdom and rule from Jerusalem and usher in the golden age of Israel. But on what's called the triumphal entry, Jesus entering Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, that is today, uh, what the crowds missed is that Jesus didn't come in on a war horse. He came in on a donkey. And that was intentional because he was signaling that he had come to be crucified, not to conquer. And so Jesus has come into Jerusalem, and the very first thing he does is he goes to the temple, and he cleanses it, cleanses it. Now this is an important event, even though the gospel accounts give us just a couple of verses on it, because not only is it strange, and it is strange, 
because it's not the Jesus we expect. But it's primarily important because it tells us volumes about Jesus. And you see, your vision of Jesus, how you see Jesus and the wonder of what he has done for you, not only determines how you fare during this important week, this holy week, and what you think about, what you reflect on, but it, it determines everything else in your life. Because you and I are no better than our vision of Jesus. And we are at our best when the love of God in Jesus Christ is absolutely clear to us. And this is why God gives us this week. Take advantage of it. Don't miss this. Because your vision of Jesus is the best thing about you. Not your friends. Uh, Not your school, not your sport, not your job, not your family. And so I'm on a mission today because I do not want you to put Jesus in a box. I want this week to be a week of renewal. So we are going to turn to Matthew's account in Matthew chapter 21. And out of respect for God's word, would you stand with me? And we're going to read beginning in verse 12. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove drove out all whoever were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said, here he's quoting Isaiah, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. Now, that's the cleansing. It's just a couple verses. It's that way in um, Mark and in Luke. But I want to continue reading just so we understand a little more of the uh, immediate context. And the blind and the lame claim uh, came to him at the temple, and he healed him them supernaturally. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law uh, saw the wonderful things he did, And the children shouting, now think of the video we just saw in the temple courts, Hosanna, the son of David, they were indignant. Now get the picture, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, Sadducees are furious, and the children are overflowing with joy. And so they come to him, do you hear what the uh, the children are saying? They asked Jesus, yes, Jesus replied. Have you ever never read from the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise? I will come back to that. So he left them and went out of the city to Bethany where he spent the night. That's God's word and you may be seated. Now, before we look at what the cleansing of this temple means, I want to make a couple introductory comments. I want you to understand that almost all of Israel got the role of the temple wrong. So Jesus demonstrating that sometimes 
the best place to be is boldly and lovingly on the opposite side of culture, the opposite side of the, the crowds, comes in and cleanses the temple. Now, this seems out of character for, uh, for Jesus, uh, because this is the very Jesus who, in just a matter of a couple days, is going to humbly, sacrificially, mercifully lay down, our, lay down his life for our sins. And yet, what does he do here? He turns the temple upside down. Now, why? What's going on? Well, what's going on is the Jews have turned it into a marketplace. Now, don't misunderstand. There is nothing wrong with money, nothing wrong with making money, nothing wrong with business, nothing wrong with these businesses, if you will. The problem, what was wrong was the location. It was in the courts of the temple. So Jesus says, according to verse 13, what's going on here? My house will be called a house of prayer. Now, now think about this. Now, we live in a very different culture than first century Israel. Our culture is a secular culture, uh, and increasingly so. But before I go on, I, I want to raise two questions with you. I want you to ask yourself these two questions. As we think about what Jesus is doing here. Are there areas where I haven't been, but where I need to lovingly stand against the crowd and not go with the flow? Are there areas where I need to stand up that I haven't been willing to stand up? Now let me go on because there's a second question and I want to raise this question. I want you to think about it lest we get smug and there's too much arrogance among us as followers of Christ. And so the second question is, uh, we ask ourselves as we watch what's going on here, are there areas where I have become too much dislike culture? Or like my friends, or like the crowd, like my school, or like where I work. And, and so I've become spineless, spiritually spineless. For example, we cannot, we must not make the mistake Israel made when they made life, even the kingdom of God, about a material transaction, about money. I mean, worship, what's that? Do you know researchers tell us that 30% of the people that have stopped coming to church because of COVID, legitimate reasons, but 30% of all the people that have stopped coming to church physically because of COVID will never return. I mean, worship, what's that? Church, what's that? Uh, we're no uh, different than Israel here. Jesus is standing against culture. He's standing against the entirety of the Jewish culture. And he comes in and he cleanses the temple. Now, now the point isn't that we, you and I are to live angry lives. Jesus is hardly angry. He hardly lived an angry life. I mean, he's upset here, clearly. Nor is the point that we need to be angry at all sorts of different things that, that we don't like, from uh, politicians to um, uh, friends or uh, co-workers. What's going on here 
is that Jesus is elevating the centrality of worship. But he's doing it with incredible uh, compassion in spite of how upset he is. After all, the very next thing he's going to do is he's going to step into the lives of the most vulnerable and he's going to heal the blind and he's going to heal the lame. So what he's going on ultimately isn't a call to be angry. It's a call to make sure worship is the number one priority in your life. And that brings me to the first thing we learn about what the cleansing of the temple means. And it means that Jesus, now get this, Jesus came to heal your worship. Jesus wants your worship. Here Jesus demands our worship. Now we're all worshipers, right? In the sense that we all weigh certain things, we assign uh, either, either physical things or spiritual things an ultimate value in our life. Sometimes we're conscious about that, sometimes it's unconscious, unintentional. And, and these are ultimate things become the things that define us, the things we look to for happiness. Uh, they can be idols, they can be um, the stuff of life, or they can be none other than Jesus Christ. Jesus has come and he's declaring, you get worship right, you honor me, you place me above everything else, you submit to me, you follow me, you deny yourself, take up your cross, and you walk with me, and you will get everything else in life right, no matter how difficult it might be. Now, unless you happen to believe that you are a meaningless speck of dust in a meaningless universe, and your life is completely and totally meaningless, then you know you have a creator. And you know all your gifts, all your talents, all uh, your successes, all the blessings and the good things in your life come from him. They're his gift to you. And that's in part why God has given us the temple, or gave Israel the temple, I should say, uh, to celebrate God's good gifts as a place Jesus tells us to pray, to meet God, to worship God, and as a place for Israel regularly to offer sacrifices for her sin. But the temple is also uh, God's way of physically demonstrating that the creator, the ruler uh, of the universe is present in human experience, that God is present in your lives. God gave Israel the temple to say, I'm here. God has given you the Holy Spirit to say, I'm here. And God wants to be worshipped. Isn't this why we love David in the Old Testament? Isn't this what made David arguably the greatest king in human history? He was a flat-out worshiper. Isn't this what made Paul so passionate for Jesus Christ? He got worship right. Isn't this ultimately what made Peter so humble? Boy, did he worship Jesus. Jesus has come to heal your worship. And I can't think of a better place for that to start than Holy Week. You see, the temple and the sacrificial system were designed to show Israel the ever-present reality of personal sin. And that our sin separates us from a holy God. But that God has chosen to deal with our sin 
through all these sacrifices. But by the time we get to the New Testament, and you read, say, the first paragraph or two of Hebrews chapter 10, what we discover is that Old Testament sacrificial system was incomplete. That's why sacrifices had to be made over and over and over. And that's why a Jew could never have a completely clear conscience or an absolute sense of total and final uh, forgiveness. And so that's why when we come to our passage, all this buying and selling is going on because the sacrifices in Old Testament Israel had to be endless. And the temple tax, which had to be paid in temple tax currency, was always in play. And that's why you had the money changers. They were to convert uh, into the temple tax currency. And you had all this buying and selling uh, going on. And then in the midst of this, one day Jesus shows up and he acts like he owns a place. Here I am. And you know what he implies? He implies that Israel lost the worship war that exists in every single human heart, including yours and mine. Money. Distractions. Had won the day, and according to Jesus himself, God's people weren't praying. God's people weren't worshiping. But man, there was a whole lot of activity going on. And so being so consumed with creation, somehow along the way, Israel lost sight of the creator. Let me illustrate this from Paul Tripp. He tells the story, he says, imagine that you are taking your family on a wonderful vacation to Walt Disney World. Your kids are out of their minds with excitement and the day comes and you hop in the car and you make, if we live in Chicago and you're driving, you make that very long drive to Walt Disney World. I've done that before and I'm still recovering. And you are getting down the road and you're making good progress and suddenly you see a, this huge massive billboard and it says Walt Disney World 100 miles away. And now imagine mom or dad or, or both of you that you pull over, you park under the sign and you say, here it is. Now you've got a lot of problems, right? But, but here's where I want to go with it. The problem is... The sign isn't the thing. The sign points to the thing. And the sign that points to Disney World will never ever give you what Disney World can give you. And the same is true with physical creation. There are two types of glory in the world. There is sign glory, created glory, and then ultimate glory. 
sign glory or is all the amazing stuff of creation, the stars, the sunsets, the oceans, uh, the mountains, uh, the tastes and the smells and the sounds and the sights and the blessings and the circumstances that we enjoy being alive in God's good world. Uh, the, the sign glory includes all uh, your gifts and your talents and, and, and on and on. But they were never given to you by God to satisfy the deepest longings of your heart. They can't give you that ultimate peace and, and joy and contentment and purpose. Earth was never designed to be your savior. It was designed to point you to the savior. To point you to the king of kings. Earth was designed to be, if you will, one massive billboard that continually points to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Because he alone has the power to satisfy the longings of your heart, to heal, to redeem, uh, to restore. Now hear me. God designed the world to point to him, not to replace him. Don't you make that mistake. So I wonder where you are with this today. Will you, for example, be like that parent or parents that park under the sign that points to Disney World? Or will you be a person recognizing that all this is just signs? And will you run to the creator who alone is the source of life and love and, man, joy and hope? When the very first thing Jesus does upon entering Jerusalem on the last week of his earthly ministry, when the very first thing he does is cleanse the temple, he is telling us about the absolute priority of worship in the life of a believer. And Israel got it wrong, don't you? Don't you get this wrong? Now, to personalize this, Ron and I are getting ready to, to move. As a matter of fact, our house is full of boxes, and we've decided not to move out of state. We're leaving Wheaton, and we're moving to St. Charles. There's a number of reasons for that, but Rhonda works in St. Charles, and, that, and that's one of them. But I tend to get distracted by a lot of stuff, and uh, I can easily get distracted by the massiveness of this move. And by the way, Rhonda continually reminds me that I'm worthless, and, and she's nodding her head right here. And that's sort of how I've been as she is packing the house. So in order to keep me centered, and this is a practice I've developed over the years, I write all sorts of ideas down on three-by-five cards. Things that I'm thinking about or verses that I'm working with. And here's what I wrote down actually about two months ago to keep me centered and not to get distracted. I wrote, home isn't something, home is not something I will find in St. Charles any more than I have found it in Wheaton, or for that matter, in any other geographical location. It's something that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit have already established with me and in me. And I say that 
Because we do not worship a new home. We do not worship a new job or a new boyfriend. We don't assign the stuff of creation, that kind of power. Because it will always let us down. Jesus has come to heal your worship. And that's one of the main things we see here in this cleansing of the temple. And I want that for you this holy week. Will you give yourself to renew your worship? There's a second meaning behind uh, this cleansing of the temple. And that is that our Lord has come to replace your ritual with reality. Now, I'm talking about empty ritual and spiritual reality. So again, think about the context. All sorts of Hundreds and thousands of sacrifices are going on as they're always uh, going on. And uh, temple taxes are being uh, paid. And so the temple courtyard is just an overflow of marketplace busyness and noise and hustle and bustle. And as a result, according to Jesus, the average Jew couldn't worship, couldn't pray, couldn't take the time to meditate, couldn't take the time to go over God's word, couldn't take the time to get centered. And so there's all sorts of activity, all sorts of ritual, but no reality going down. And that's why Jesus says, my house shall be called a house of prayer. Now how about you? Here we come to Holy Week. And I wonder, is your life today like the temple? You've got all sorts of activity, good activity. None of this was bad activity. It was just the way it was being done in the location. Uh, a lot of noise in your life, a, a, lot, of, a lot of busyness. And, and you know what happens if that's just nonstop? Uh, we end up being followers of Jesus Christ who are just going through the motions spiritually. And there's no deep, satisfying experience of the presence and the peace of our living God. There's no sense of the pleasure of God, even though uh, things aren't, aren't going well. Now, don't misunderstand. There is nothing wrong with rituals. I have rituals. We all do. What's wrong are empty rituals. And we pat ourselves on the back and think we're okay. So, for example... Do you pray or do you merely say prayers? And when you pray, do you sometimes, it doesn't happen all the time, but do you sometimes have this remarkable sense of your anxiety or your um, sense of inadequacy or your anger is suddenly lifted? As the Holy Spirit owns and takes on himself that burden you have cast upon him. Uh, when you pray, when you come to God, do you bow in reverence? Is there this sense of reverence? Or are, are, are you merely blowing through a laundry list of requests that never change? God, I pray for this. God bless that. What I'm asking, and this is the move we make from ritual to reality, 
What I'm asking is, do you sense God's love upon you? Well, let me help you with this. I want to go back to the book of Jeremiah. The Old Testament book of Jeremiah is essentially one long announcement of God's impending judgment on the nation, on the Jews, because of Israel's chronic disobedience, Israel's chronic unbelief, Israel's chronic inability to worship anything but idols. and the stuff of creation. And so God, as he has done in Isaiah before Jeremiah, Ezekiel after Jeremiah, uh, uh, announces judgment and goes on and on and on about the judgment. Yet then we come to the middle of the book of Jeremiah, and beginning in chapter 30, the mood changes from one of judgment to God promising Israel a coming uh, redemption and restoration, and it's just beautiful. And in Jeremiah chapter 31, we have a verse that sort of summarizes what God is saying to Israel in the midst of her sin, a verse that has attracted all sorts of attention. And look at this verse. Is not Ephraim a synonym for Israel? Is not Israel sinful Israel, my dear son, the child Now notice this, in whom I delight. Though I often speak against him, I still remember him. Therefore my heart yearns for him. I have great compassion for him, on him, upon him. Now what in the world? Prior to chapter 31, there's been 29 chapters of nothing but judgment. And then we come two chapters later to this incredible statement of love. I I mean, look at it. Sinful, defiant Israel. God calls my dear son. The child in whom I delight. Do you see? If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, your sin doesn't separate you from God. Your sin doesn't bring condemnation. God isn't that way. Here we see the heart of God. God calls you my dear son or daughter. You are my child in whom I delight. Then notice in the next line this word I remember. I still remember him. I still remember her. Now remember here isn't merely I will never forget but it's I will never forsake. It's stronger. It's a language of covenant that I'm never going to let you go. I'm never going to lose sight of you. And no matter what you do, you are mine in Jesus Christ, and I know you. And then in the last line, we come to this, and this love that God has for us is so deep. It's so significant. He tells it it flows from the inner recesses of his being. My heart yearns for you. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, God in his heart of hearts at the center of who he is yearns for you. Now Isaiah previously had invited us to yearn for the living God. Here Jeremiah promises us that God yearns for us. I want you to think about that this holy week. I want you to understand in and through everything that Jesus Christ has done for you, it's because in God's heart, 
He yearns for you. And he doesn't have just a little compassion on you. He has great compassion for you. Now, in your worship, now I am back to this thing of worship. In your worship, do you get this ultimate reality? Do you personalize the love of God for you? Do you understand that on your worst days, after your biggest mistakes, your biggest sins, your biggest arguments, your biggest failures, that God in his heart yearns for you? That he cannot forsake you? And does this change you? And does the unstoppable love that God has for you create in you an unstoppable love for others regardless? So I wonder, what is the state of your temple? And be honest, what is the state of your soul? Are you just going through the motions? Is it ritual or is there a fundamental reality? And what do I mean by reality? I mean you are alive and how much God loves you in Jesus Christ. And that is the point and the picture and the purpose of Holy Week. Let me go on. There's a third thing the cleansing means. And here Jesus reveals that he is the true king, the king of kings. Some people, uh, when they're curious about the Bible, ask the question, well, where in the Gospels does Jesus say he is God? And the answer is either directly or indirectly on almost every single page uh, of the Gospels. Now, so for example, think of this story. Let's go back to verse 12. Jesus drives everybody out. Jesus overthrows the furniture. And you know what? Only an owner of a house would do that. This is an indirect claim to being the God of the temple. We go to the next verse, verse 13. Jesus quotes Isaiah 56. My house, my house, my house. And in doing so, Jesus is saying, this is my house, a claim to deity. We go to the next verse, verse 14. We see Jesus supernaturally, after having cleansed the the temple, cleansing people, stepping in with love and compassion uh, into the lives of people you and I would often avoid. And then we have this great thing, and I said I would come back to this at the end of Verse 16, the children are praising uh, Jesus. They're honoring Jesus as Messiah. And this must have sent the Pharisees into orbit. Because Jesus says, yeah, they're doing this, but then Jesus goes to Psalm 8. And that's what he's quoting. And he says, as a matter of fact, I just want you guys to know that these children are actually fulfilling this prophecy right now. A specific claim to deity. So do you see, just in these little verses, Jesus in word and deed repeatedly claims to be the living God. He claims to be the the king. Jesus is saying, I am the king. You are not the king, Israel. And so if you struggle with control issues like Rob does, 
then this is something I want to encourage you to apply to your life and to tell yourself repeatedly, like I tell myself repeatedly, hey, Rob, you're not the king in this area. You know, you need to chill. Jesus is the king. And I need to stop acting like I'm the king. And so do you. But I want to go back to verse 12 and bring this issue of Jesus' reign, the fact that Jesus is the king home. Because I want you to see here, if Jesus is the king, here's what this means for you. It means that he has come to rearrange your furniture. The furniture of your life. Jesus has come, now look at the verse, to drive out the evil in your life by overturning the tables in your life. And by that I mean the values, the habits, uh, the relationships that are unhealthy, the things that get you in trouble, the things that get you in a funk. This is one of the ways you know if you're a Christian because this is often painful. God, what in the world's happening here? It involves loss. It involves change. But a Christian is someone who says, Jesus, you are my king, so you can rearrange anything and everything as you see fit. Uh, friends, you understand, don't you, that Jesus doesn't ride into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and say to Israel, hey guys, let's negotiate. He doesn't say, hey, why don't you take 50% control and I'll take 50% control. Now, as Jesus rides in and now as he cleanses the temple, what Jesus is revealing is, uh, if I state it in terms of what Jesus is saying, Jesus is saying, I am the king. Uh, this is my house. This is my temple. I'm in charge. And I am going to rearrange things in your life, and you will wonder what in the world I am doing. But I want to tell you, the rewards are literally heavenly. Now, let me just parenthetically add this. This is fundamental biblical doctrine, theology. God is sovereign. God is in charge. He is the master. We are the servants. We submit to him, and, and we're clear, and there's wonderful lines of authority in the kingdom of God that aren't harsh, aren't oppressive, uh, but are necessary for life. So is Jesus your king? And I want to say to you, uh, this theology, th this doctrine, this fundamental understanding that my God is my God and that he is sovereign um, is what's going to carry us in the days ahead as culture seems to be moving increasingly away from us as followers of Christ. And so, for example, if the Equality Act becomes law of the land, then that's going to have all sorts of awful implications for us as believers relative to freedom of speech. How are we going to thrive? We're going to thrive by saying, Jesus, you are my king. This is your assignment for me. And I'm going to honor you. How are you and I going to press against the incessant onslaught 
of this notion that money makes the world go around or that it's your appearance or that it's your success or that it's your uh, performance by understanding who your king is and submitting to him and immersing yourself in his word and obeying it. So the cleansing of the temple, what in the world does it mean? Well, for starters, it means that Jesus has come to heal our worship, to restore our worship, to, to replace ritual then with reality. It, it means that Jesus is the king. And finally, and I will be brief here, but this is so important, it means that Jesus Christ is your true temple. When Adam and Eve, our parents, fell in the Garden of Eden, Genesis tells us they were banished from the garden, banished from the presence of God, and the garden was protected by an angel who held a sword, causing many people over the years to say the only way back into the presence of God is through the shedding of blood. And that brings us to Good Friday. Because on the cross, on Good Friday, Jesus gave his blood for our blood, his death for our life. In other words, Jesus on Good Friday advanced against the sword, was struck down by the sword, but in the process shattered the sword so that you and I, the moment we believe, enjoy eternal fellowship in the presence of the living God. This is why Jesus refers to himself at the temp as the temple at the beginning of his ministry. So look at this is John chapter 2. Jesus uh, said to them, destroy this temple, destroy me, destroy my body, which he knew they would do, and I will raise it again in three days. Jesus is your temple. Not the Old Testament sacrificial system. And because Jesus has died for us, when we believe, we find forgiveness as a sacrificial system uh, could not ultimately offer us. We find the ability to meet uh, with the living God. We find uh, the ability to enjoy him and experience the peace of God. That is why upon the moment of Jesus' death, the veil in the temple was torn in two. We have access so Paul says, where I've been crucified with Christ, it is no longer I live, but Christ who lives in, in me. Jesus is in our lives. And friends, I want you to understand that Jesus, I want you to imagine Jesus in heaven with his arms outstretched, or maybe in your living room, or your family room, or your bedroom. And, and Jesus, with his arms outstretched, reveals the holes in his hands. They are eternal. And in that moment, uh, you see perfection. The perfection of compassion, tenderness, love, and mercy. And this is the Jesus that is going to rearrange the furniture in your, of your life and everything in your life to give you everything in his life. Let's pray. So, Father, we thank you 
for our Savior. We thank you for this amazing story, for this amazing week, where Jesus gave everything for us that we might find everything in him. God, I pray that this would be a week of renewal. And I pray in your son's name. Amen.